Welcome to Team Rabbit Hole Edition 218, spinning on the Potter wheel. With creative, passionate, health-conscious cancer, join the team as we get to know Anne-Marie Vallea, a potter, an herbalist, a gardener, and generally dope chica. She's living in North Carolina and has her mind on mandalas as well as self-sustaining nutritional practices. Yum! Welcome and well met. Thank you. Such a warm hello. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I haven't talked to you probably in like a year. Um, so before we get on to all this, something that we um, do on this podcast is correlate the episode to the major arcana uh, is what I tend to do. And um, this episode will actually be the two card, the high priestess. I offer up the mysteries of life. The high priestess is about trusting your intuition, listening to your inner guides, understanding yourself better listening to the music of the universe and allowing creative ideas to germinate. Raphael, what is the card you have? Jim, I lost you there for a moment. Derp. Raphael, did you hear what I said? I did, Jim, but then just replay. Okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll reread it. Um, but this episode is going to be a high... I was just making sure it's not a technical thing on my end. This is a high priestess uh, episode. Um, and it's about, I offer up the mysteries of life the High Priestess is about trusting your intuition, listening to your inner guides, understanding yourself better, listening to the music of the universe, and allowing creative ideas to germinate. And then I'm curious as to what Raphael's part is. Yes, Jim, just make sure you're speaking into your microphone. You may have been... Got it. Thank you. So we have number 32. It is the Angel of Clemency belonging to the Dominions. This angel is invoked to protect against those who attack us in court promotes grace and mercy for big businessmen, influences jurists, lawyers, and judges, is an angel of justice. It is the good God associated with the Eight of Pentacles. The crystal here springs out at me. It's called Snowflake Obsidian. And the affirmation is, I know there are no shortcuts to success. And qualities include clemency the capacity to forgive planning thinking strategy modesty kindness and gifted speaking so i'm curious Anne marie between that high priestess card and that angel if anything resonated with you mercury is in retrograde we might be having technical difficulties <laughs> It is possible. I can hear you all right. Anne-Marie, can you hear us? If so. I don't think she can, so I'll tell her we started crap. In, this, in the meantime, um, Raphael, uh, that last guest was crazy cool. I'm trying to think of what, I mean, I don't have my microphone next to me. Now I do. Um, I'll get back into it in a second. Anne-Marie is a chick that I became aware of, I don't even know how, through Facebook. And uh, about a year ago, I gave her a chart reading. I don't even remember if she if it was like a client, like a paid client, or just like, here, I'll help you out. But it was a lot of fun. And Marie, you here? Yes, I'm here. 
Mercury is in retrograde, so don't take it personally. <laughs> Thank you for the friendly reminder. Oh, yeah. And you have a moon in Aquarius. I was just saying, uh, which is like everything's in Aquarius right now, so hopefully you're feeling good. Um, we read those cards, and I was kind of just curious between the High Priestess and the Angel of, I think it was Clemency or something, uh, if anything resonated. Well, I didn't happen to hear most of what the card reading was. Well, we could repeat it if you'd like. Yes, please do. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're learning grace on the fly here. That's how we do. So let me just reopen this book. Um, the card, well, like I was saying at the very beginning, is uh, something I do for every episode is break down the episode number to the major arcana. So in this case, uh, that would be the, the two, which is the high priestess. And it says, I offer up the mysteries of life. It's about trusting your intuition, listening to your inner guides, understanding yourself better listening to the music of the universe and allowing creative ideas to germinate. And then Raphael's uh, angel card is as follows. Can you still hear us, Anne-Marie? Yes, I can hear you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, great. So this is number 32, the angel of clemency, belonging to the dominions. This angel is invoked to protect against those who attack us in court, promotes grace and mercy for big businessmen influences jurists lawyers and judges is an angel of justice it is the good god associated with the snowflake obsidian crystal and the eight of pentacles within the tarot and the affirmation is i know there are no shortcuts to success qualities include the capacity to forgive modesty kindness gifted speaking and natural pardon so between those two cards, did anything pop out and resonate for you? Oh, certainly a handful of things. Um, intuitions, practicing and depending on intuition, being kind, uh, creativity, of course. That's what's up. And when you were kind of um, away for a second, I was telling Raphael uh, how I became aware of you. I'm not really sure exactly. I think it was through Facebook. I don't remember the exact details, like if I friended you or why or whatever. But at some point about a year ago, I was in Australia and I was I gave you a chart reading. I don't remember if that was paid or just for fun because you were cool or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, I've read your chart. So we've had uh, that's when we talked and conversed. Um, and you've always struck me as someone who's kind of going to the beat of her own drum, but in a very creative way. Um, you know, whether it's pottery or like you're saying, all these kind of um, herbalistic tincture making and growing food. Um, very cool uh, and and very kind of new age in the, in the best sense of the term. Um, you're you're bringing in the new you know aeon in that sense. Um, so before you know um, we get too started, do you remember how we kind of got in contact at all? I remember it being a social media connection, and you very warmly reached out to me um, asking about providing a, a reading for me and it took us a couple of weeks to get to that point and you were very sweetly um, persistent and just ignited that interest in me and then you and I went through a reading together and I ended up learning quite a lot about myself and you had advocated for me to talk with you more through your podcast and uh, here we are a year later. All in good time. Sometimes you plant the seed and it takes a little while to grow. Uh, Raphael, my fiance, knows if anything I'm persistent uh, so when I want something, uh, like whether it's a conversation or, you know, to travel or whatever, I try to do it, uh, even creatively, no matter the circumstances. So 
kind of um, let's start, I guess, at the very beginning. A very good place to start, as they say in the sound of music. Um, where, where was, where have you grown up? What kind of culture were you a part of? Um, when did you start getting creative and exploring kind of realms of uh, sovereignty and independence, as well as you know artistic creativity? So my life began in the South. I was born in North Carolina, and then I very quickly moved to Long Island, where I was raised on uh, in a in the North Shore, Long Island, small harbor town. And I am the daughter to two very wonderful parents um, who took academics quite seriously. So my upbringing was sort of leaned on an elitist side on the, with the spine of academics. So I took schooling very seriously most of my life. And um, when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from two places. I say that I'm from North Carolina by birth, and then I say I'm from New York. So my childhood was spent on Long Island, and then I grew into adulthood back in North Carolina because I returned here uh, just before finishing high school, so at the age of like 15 or 16. And then I've lived here for the last about 17 years. So I, um, I finished school here, and then I went to college here. And the, during my college years is when a, a, a lot of my life started to form and develop this individual approach. I, uh, I started school as a business student, and then I ended as a business and art student. So while I was pursuing a business degree, I completed art courses to fulfill my um, undergraduate degree. And the, the head of the Department of Art reached out to me, asking me to pursue a second degree in the arts because she saw my work. And um, I sort of made a deal with her while right before I was about to graduate from my business degree, that if I could complete a second degree in two or less years, I would stay and pursue an art degree. And it was during that time of my life that I fell in love for the first time. So I was pursuing a degree in the arts and I was in love at the same time. And I have never been the same person since. It was a huge pivotal year of my life. Sounds rather tumultuous. Um, fascinating. It's funny because I, I, I mean, I knew you were from Carolina. I'm, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, so I've been down to, you know, Nags Head and uh, places like that um, before, Lake Gaston and stuff like that. Uh, but now that I'm hearing you talk, I mean, it's been a while since we've talked, uh, you definitely kept the Rhode Island draw, which I think is actually really cool because it's not so thick that people are like, what the, you know, or what anything, but you've got this kind of edge to your accent, which is, I think it's cool. So, and, and um, I'm looking at your chart, you have your North Node conjunct your moon in Aquarius seventh house. Um, Raphael's a Libra, which is the seventh house, but he's also got his North Node in Aquarius. So you're, I mean, uh, in a weird way, I've always felt like I knew you without knowing you, if that makes sense. Like your tribe, clearly. Um, you're kind of jamming and doing your own thing. Um, so, <laughs> And I'm, I'm looking at your chart again. You've got uh, 10th house and Gemini, which is Jupiter and Mercury there. So it doesn't surprise me that you um, kind of through trickster methodologies, I guess you could say, went from business and integrated the arts. It sounds rather serendipitous. It's nice and very affirming, obviously, that somebody saw your work and was like, yo, here's a carrot if you so choose to go after it. Um, did that like give you the confidence to pursue it in a very different way than you maybe had before? Oh, absolutely. I provided confidence and direction. You know, um, the business school was very regimented and um, they're very exact in business because you have to you have to meet numbers and provide direct explanations of things. And there's not much leeway 
uh, it's very cutthroat in a sense of that type of education and the arts are more fluid and forgiving and open and a little bit more wild approach to learning and integrating techniques and skills. So I was, when she, when the department had reached out to me, it was validating that, um, that I actually, although I just simply enjoyed it for how it made me feel, uh, she validated the fact that not only does it just make me feel good, but I can, I have high, a high enough craft and interest that I can pursue it. Um, and I've continued to pursue it for the rest of my life as one of my careers, one of my many hats that I wear now. That's what's up. So I'm looking at your chart again, just as a refresher course for myself, be like, what, what Pokemon am I talking to? Um, you are a sun and Venus in 11th house cancer. So very high priestess there, which like epiphany through intuition in a sense. Um, kind of talk about maybe some of the um, preferred modalities. I know you're into pottery, but like, were you doing painting or, uh, you know, illustration or uh, what, what are the kind of the mediums to which you found yourself expressing and maybe some of the uh, lessons from that second, uh, you know, that degree that, that you picked up? Because that's not terribly, I mean, it's cool that you were adaptive enough to do that. I um, mean, you know, an opportunity doesn't always have to be taken just because of the apples on the tree or whatever. So I'm glad for your sake that you took it. Sounds like it helped kind of solidify your own personage in that sense, creatively and otherwise, uh, even you know, um, uh, entrepreneurially or whatever. So, what's kind of your style? What were some of the bigger lessons? And maybe we can get into if you want. If you don't want to, that's cool. What falling in love during that process was like? Oh, such. Uh, juicy question. So first and foremost, for me as an artist, I tend to lean towards mediums and methodologies based on how they make me feel. So if I feel excited or um, exploratory or stimulated, I will, I will lean towards pursuing that medium more compared to something that makes me feel uh, stuck or uh lost or uncreative uh, or frustrated like immediately frustrated so for me that translated into sculptural work something that was more abstract and less exact so for me it was three-dimensional work in the form of sculpting with clay or welding with steel um, my approach to two-dimensional art such as painting returned to me using a palette knife to build paint off the surface of the canvas as opposed to uh, focusing on something realistic and using a paintbrush to create depth into the piece, I literally created the depth off the piece. So mostly to the spine of my life is I, I lean towards things that make me feel good. And I lean towards liking making other people feel good. And that certainly translates into my art. So clay made me feel really good. Out of all of the mediums that I worked with, it was uh, nurturing, it was warm, it was forgiving. It was exciting, it was new, it smelled good, it was very earthy, it was very natural. Uh, you could erase it at a certain point. You can create it and cultivate it on your own out and wildcraft it out in nature, which I thought was really exciting and ties into a lot of my sustainable approach to life. Um, so while I was a student, I was I focused more on my ceramic work and my sculptural classes, and it was during that time that I fell in love. And um, it was kind of in the beginning of my art degree that I fell in love and it was, it just generated all of this momentum and all of this euphoric sensation of creativity and openness to uh, fail and to learn from the mistakes without 
penalizing myself, which is from that energy of being in love and then loving what I was doing at the same time. And then towards the end of my art degree, uh, that love relationship ended and I was heartbroken for the first time. And that heartbreak was one of the most painful things I've ever experienced in my life still. And it generated some of the best artwork I have ever made still. And I'm still selling work almost 10 years later now at a higher price than I could ever have imagined from work that I made as a student from that heartbreak. So I learned how to channel pain and emotions into work from that heartbreak. And it was a different approach to when I was just in an exp like in a, um, in a uh, experimental phase in the beginning, I was learning how to use the mediums and learning how to sculpt. And then towards the end of the degree, I knew how to put my craft to the, to the test. And then the way that I was feeling generated the way that I was creating work and the type of work that I was creating. And it was definitely dark and upsetting and vulgar and a lot of nude, a lot of naked body parts. And it was, um, it stirred a lot of audiences that viewed my work and interacted with my work, which ignited me more to want to go and push the limit towards people's comfort level to make them uncomfortable, but in beautiful ways, you know? Yeah, that's what's up. I'm looking at your chart. You have Pluto in the third house in Scorpio. You're, we're both of that generation. It's kind of a long um, generational thing, Pluto's and Scorpio's. But it being in your third house, like you're not afraid of expressing ideas that um, shock and are taboo in a sense. So it doesn't sound terribly surprising in this. I mean, not to deflate the balloon or whatever, but yeah, if you're going to, and, and your Chiron is conjunct your son, uh, cancer 11th house. So it's like, you're going to go through some serious, not only heartaches, but like just like trial by fire wounding. Um, maybe even like, you know, you know, I found myself, I lost myself. I found, who am I? What am I? Oh, now I know. Now I don't like that kind of stuff. And you'll end up communicating it through very transformative <laughs> taboo, uh, very kind of stark ways where, um, you kind of get attention. Um, but through the heart, because you are a cancer, it is about feeling like you even said these are juicy questions. That's a very cancerian kind of way of looking at it. It's like, yeah, there's a lot, you know, it's like the feels. You're all about the feels at some level. Oh, the way feeling is the spine to my life. It's how I feel, how I make others feel, how an audience feels when I'm physically around. And if I have any way of um, affecting the feeling of a room, I'm going to take the initiative. And that's certainly how I was as a student with academics and excelling and being a straight A student for as many years as I could and being in the top in my art degree. And then, you know, and any sort of platform that I pursue now. So now as an adult, I've, I've maintained a pottery and art world in my personal life and I have my side art business. And um, I definitely take my like other healing practices seriously like gardening and growing my own herbs and using aesthetic dance or physical health and nutrition very seriously because of the way that they make me feel and that's really high vibe and that's my goal is to maintain a high vibrational place for myself and then teach other people how to attain that too so the essence of my life all comes back to feeling and how I feel and how another person feels. It's, it's what keeps me going. It's what keeps me uh, propelling in life for sure. Everyone's got to feel good. And even when you don't feel well, or if you don't feel good, figuring out why and like going through the intricacies of how to, how to, uh, to change that or to improve that. So in that sense, I mean, um, cause I'm not, uh, this brings uh, how it up to this. What you're saying, make you know, everyone needs to feel good, but like even the blues can feel good, kind of thing. Because sometimes people get into this modality of thinking. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts. 
Um, not that it's bypassing fully, but it's like if I, you know, if I don't feel joyful and excellent all the time, something's wrong. How do you look at the spectrum of emotion and uh, experience as, you know, just as much a proving ground as, you know, you know, bliss states just as important as kind of like, you know, darkness of the soul. Uh, the darkness is, I think, as most people learn, is that uh, you learn the most from deep pain and from struggle and upset and trauma. Um, so I definitely think that, you know, the goal is to be as high vibe as you can, you know, as to be as content and smiley and happy as you as you're able to, but to also embrace and to feel comfortable and understanding of yourself and forgiving of yourself when you're in the states of sadness or darkness or feeling misunderstood. And that's more of where my adult mind stays and is focusing on now is understanding how to teach other people that it's okay not to feel okay. Uh, but it's also, you know, like the goal is to feel okay at some point, you know, like not to lose that sight and not to ever give up hope for that as as an end as an ending point. But along the way, you're going to feel shifts in energy, but to know that it's acceptable and that that's quite all right. And I think a lot of what people go through, particularly myself, is the lack of support or understanding during the times of darkness or feeling like you know, that you don't have people to reach out to during those dark times. And um, I figured out ways through nutrition and exercise and arts to dig myself out of my own darknesses. And um, now I'm at a place where I've, I'm still working through a lot of it for myself and doing a lot of shadow work, but I'm at a, more of in a position of being able to teach people and expose other people how to sit in this pool of emotions that every human body experiences and to talk about them, you know, to bring them to the surface. That's one of my favorite things to talk about is how are you feeling? And um, it translates into how I eat, how I eat, I mean, how I, uh, how I live, how I communicate, the things that I wear, the way that I live outside and the way that I um, use the property in my land to return nurturing to myself is just, learning how to um, to maintain a nurturing aspect to life, even through when people are like going through darkness or myself and learning how to lean on certain things such as plant nutrition or self-expression or basic conversation or silence. It's the support system, that kind of thing. So yeah, I definitely, um, I advocate for both. You know, the end product is to feel happy, but it's okay not to feel happy. Well said. Yeah, I think culture tries to just smack a smiley face on everything, and and if it's you know not addressing the color palette that exists, and you know avoiding certain colors, um, those things usually tend to bite us in the ass pretty hard later. Um, but it sounds like yeah, you're doing a very integrative and um, mindful approach to the emotional spectrum of being human. So that's what's up. Um, I'm kind of curious, uh, when you're doing pottery, we're talking about kind of all the elements of it, you know, smell good, earthy, all this stuff. Do you, I mean, it is the dust of the earth, which, you know, humans are made of at some level. Um, do you feel there's some kind of metaphysical connection there where you feel like, you know, uh, in a weird biblical kind of God mode where you're like shaping things out of the clay of the earth? Um, do you feel connected to Gaia and, you know, that level? Like what's kind of the maybe metaphysical, if any, um, situation when you're doing pottery? Oh, yeah, for sure. So for me, you know, clay comes from the earth, right? It's a material, it's a medium that you can, and I have, 
go to a water source where the sediment is concentrated and you can dig up clay and you can process clay to make it more fine or stronger or you can keep clay in a very raw and chunky form and you can create artwork or pieces or pottery either sculptural or utilitarian which is what i'm focusing on now out of clay from the natural world and the natural world is the spine to who i am you know is from how i eat how how i dress how i choose to smell i love clay because it is very earthy um it is something that uh that you can you can utilize with other with other plant materials too you can add things to your clay to make it uh, feel a certain way or to fire with certain patterns on the surface uh, i know that there's kyanite ground in the clay that i personally choose to use because it makes it stronger and then it adds all of the properties of kyanite uh, to the world that chooses to use and buy and support my artwork uh, so for me, it's just a natural, it's a natural medium as opposed to paint where paint for me smells, although you can make your own pigments, but I'm talking about like the, the conventional paints and tubes of paint, something that smells different. It doesn't have the same uh, psychological aspect to clay for, as clay does for me. I definitely lean so towards the natural. I could tell. And I mean, it's looking, I, I haven't like checked out your pictures in a long time. It's like, you've got dreadlocks. I don't know if you still have them. Um, you seem more like an earth mama kind of hippie type, more or less. Not that that's a pigeonhole that I'm trying to throw you in, but it seems like even like when you said the way I smell, I'm imagining uh, you aren't just dousing yourself in Chanel number no. five or whatever. So um, do you look at it as kind of a communion with the way things are? Like what's your kind of philosophy in terms of naturalism? Um, do you think that people have gotten far away? I mean, we don't have to get into cybernetics and, you know, going to Mars and all this kind of stuff, but do you think we've gone too far down a certain pipeline and we need to kind of return um, to almost a Walden Pond kind of situation? Absolutely. So I was, I had an elitist upbringing around the, um, some of the finer things in life. I lived a very materialistic life for my adulthood, my young adulthood and my childhood. And that was around all of the Chanel wearing and smelling human beings and it was a very artificial judgmental uh, scrutinizing non-accepting rigid way of living and it wasn't until i when i started my art degree i fell in love for the first time and the man that i fell in love with was uh, part of a family that came from suffering uh, and financial poverty so i was finally exposed to uh, hardships in life financial hardships and what that actually looked like in terms of living space and education or lack of education or lack of hygiene and um it's sort of as an artist propelled me towards clay to return to natural items because that's what's most accessible like at the end of the day if i wanted to go out and cultivate clay i could i don't have to buy it if i don't uh, in order to make my piece or any work that i make um, it also came back to like the way that i dress eat and think i don't have to wear a designer a designer's logo to rep to feel grounded within myself and i d immediately ran with that when i started when i fell in love with this man because his family was living off of instinct and materialism wasn't even even discussed at all so it took this veil away from my life and threw me into this real rawness of life 
And I'll forever be grateful of meeting that person and <clears throat> being integrated to his family. So it was just this fire that ignited within me to to go away from the way that I was raised and to unlearn all of these behaviors or thought processes or judgments on people based on uh, aesthetic look, smell, and appeal or, or money. And um, I completely, I guess out of, out of um, rebellion, I went against all of it. I started wearing tie-dye, learned about tie-dye, started listening to different music, was integrated to uh, the Grateful Dead and then the whole community of the dead lot. And then came with that, um, you know, uh, all of the world of psychedelics and music and living a more carefree life with a carefree mind. And I have never turned back since. I have been, I have advocated for myself to be as natural as possible with how I eat, dress, smell, and what work I create and how I ship it. You know, now as an artist, it comes down to material, mater other materials, like physical equipment and materials and how best to uh, reduce my carbon footprint in every area of my life that I can. Had you done psychedelics before that relationship or were you pretty straight-laced kind of Long Island girl? That's a great question. So my parents were very strict uh, growing up and I had done mushrooms prior to meeting him and I loved them. It was a way for me to escape in a very beautiful, fun way. Um, I had smoked pot just uh, like uh, for a couple of years before leaving off to college but what i enjoyed more were the plant were psychedelics because it it expanded my mind more than pot did and uh yeah i um even in my college years i took my academics very seriously so i really didn't explore what psychedelics deeply deeply until i was graduated from college uh, but i definitely made time to party and to experience freedom of adulthood while I was in college when I could. But first, my academics came first. It doesn't surprise me in some way that you enjoyed mushrooms. I mean, it's very earthy. Um, I don't know if you're into Terrence McKenna, but the, even the fact that mushroom spores can kind of go through space, it's like this maybe even, um, you know, intergalactic consciousness that works mycelially and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that's, it's cool. Uh, did you have, like, was your first mushroom trip, like, really profound? And you were just like, oh, shit. Uh, because it seems like you kind of got turned on by that relationship in the, um, it's almost like Buddha, in a sense, where he's like, oh, I've lived this privileged life, and now I see how the other half live. Um, and now there's something in the middle that I've got to kind of aspire towards. Um, but do you remember that trip? Like, was it, I, I remember when I turned 18, I, my, I had never done mushrooms. And for my 18th birthday, my friend, uh, we went camping in a van, basically. And we ate like I had like an eight or something of you know mushroom shake or something. So who knows how much ultimately that was? But um, yeah, it was crazy because it was like, oh shit! I think I see. I mean, obviously visuals that are psychedelic and hallucinatory or whatever. It's like, oh, I. But we were in a forest, so I was like, oh my gosh! I think the tr trees have faces. Which on the one hand is maybe a psychological phenomenon of the brain doing things, but at the same time, it felt like I was getting tapped into like some level of nature, spirit, reality, almost like um you know, hobbit level reality or, you know, middle earth. And where it's like, oh my gosh, the trees can talk. The dryads and the naiads do exist. Uh, do you remember anything of like that kind of flavoring of your trip or is it just kind of lost to the annals of uh, exploratory psychonautery? Yes, I do remember my first mushroom trip very well. It was, um, I think I was 16, 16 or 17. And it was 
nothing shy of absolutely enjoyable. It was beautiful. It was fun. It was filled with lots of laughter, lots of really good feelings. It was during the summer uh, while I was still living on Long Island. So I lived in a harbor town and our back streets were not well traveled. So we could walk on the streets in the middle of the street uh, without care and concern for any sort of traffic or really any sort of interaction from others too much. Um, it was a very wooded harbor town as well. Uh, one thing, a couple of things that I remember from that trip, a few things that I remember from that trip is one, how it made me feel, which was elated. I was euphoric. I was excitable. I was laughing hysterically just from the gut. And then um, I remember that was the first time that I had listened to Dark Side of the Mood by Pink Floyd oh, because yeah. someone in class or a teacher, I think, actually, it wasn't even a child. It was a teacher had suggested that album. And uh, they were so beautiful with their words, with describing or suggesting it, that I remembered writing it down on a piece of paper and keeping it in my room. And when I finally came back to my room uh, hours later from exploring outside, I remembered, oh, I need to listen to this music now that I'm alone. And it was during the that submerged, that immersion of myself with that album that my brother called me at four o'clock in the morning and really quickly in my relationship with my brother is, was, is, has been very distant almost all of my life. And during those years as a teenager, you know, there were um, opposing forces between him and I at that age. So he, I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't recall if he ever called me at any other time, but I thought it was very special that he called me out of the blue at four o'clock in the morning to talk to me while I was as high as a kite. And our conversation was so smooth and loving and excitable, short and sweet. And I didn't realize the connection of that or the power of the mycelium power of that until my adulthood now, you know, 20 years later, how that connected energy and ignited energy within him, within him to call me during that time. I'll never forget that phone call. It's one of my favorite phone calls I've ever had with him. Synchronicities abound. Uh, that's pretty profound. I mean, have you told him how that went down or uh, since then? <laughs> Oh, well, she's resetting her phone, probably. Raphael, um, <laughs> pretty interesting. It's funny because Darks of the Moon had a lot to do with my first, like, getting stoned kind of experience. So Darks of the Moon, I think, is, I mean, not to be cliche, it's kind of a quintessential kind of, like, initiatory psychedelic journey. Even just the topicology, how, how intros feels like coming up, you know, um, with the intro stuff and to breathe. Um, but, um, uh, Anne-Marie, I'm kind of wondering, have you told your brother since then the nature of your state or is that kind of on the DL or how, how's that gone? No, it's, that still remains on the DL for sure. I don't think that's a conversation that, that would, that he would feel warm about. I think it would alarm him and trigger him more than it would uh, ground him in any sort of way. Say la vie. Um, so Raphael, I'm kind of curious if anything she said in terms of either psychedelic experience um Dark Nights of the Soul art has spoken to you in any real way? I would just point out that you know there's different stages in realizing where you want to go. It's definitely or it can be advantageous even to have seen different worlds, let's say, within this particular life. And then ultimately, just like our previous guests, what happens is it appears if it that's the same in your case as well. You get your own 
plot of land, you have your own workshop and you do your own stuff. I guess that's the end result. There's a meme I've posted before, but it's like, you know, it shows um, Ram Das and Timothy Leary and I'm forgetting somebody else um, uh, before LSD and then after and they've all got beards and they're like definitely freewheeling kind of hippie types. Uh, Alan Watts was the other one. And um, yeah, it seems that definitely people who reset pharmacologically through the magic of um, entheogens, basically, right, um, through kind of naturally, whether it's naturally occurring or not, I mean, it could be argued, you know, DMT crystals don't really form naturally or whatever, but um, it seems that people who are willing to take the ticket and take the ride, uh, typically, unlike, you know, media and, you know, religious kind of folk want you to think, you don't lose your mind necessarily, not to say that weird shit can't happen, um, and, you know, Sid Barrett comes to mind and stuff, but um, it seems that people are better for it and usually honestly find themselves in a way uh, that leads to more, um, almost a shedding of the the glass menagerie life and kicking into more of an authentic journey. Um, do you think, had you not done psychedelics, you would have, and had that relationship, I mean, I don't want to presume, but it, would you have just kind of been maintaining kind of the Long Island chic life and were these kind of punctuated did these things pop your balloon enough to cause the change or do you think the change would have happened anyway eventually or how do you feel about that so my change in lifestyle and living situation came was more generated based on how I, how i felt how i was feeling as a teenager um not so much based off of my psychedelic experiences as a teenager i at the time when i was living on long island during the time that I had, I experienced my first psilocybin trip, I was very sad. I was very frustrated. My mother, who is now one of my best friends in life, and she's such an extraordinary woman, uh, her and I were going through a lot of strife because my parents had divorced and she was going through an immeasurable amount of pain that I didn't understand until I entered my adulthood. And there was a lot of conflict. And at the end of the day, I wanted to just feel better. I wanted to receive less conflict and I was being re very rebellious against her and I was causing her a lot of pain. And I was um, just a poisonous child. I used poisonous words, poisonous actions towards her and I just wanted it to end at some point. And the only solution for me at the time was to move in with my other parents, which was my father's home. And he was living here in North Carolina. So I took the risk of ch changing my life and location to come to North Carolina to see if it made me feel better. So um, when I arrived here in North Carolina, my, you know, my whole life changed more, more for the purpose of, of trying to find a way to improve my happiness. And it was very rocky. The first year was a lot of transition and into Southern life was very different for me. Um, the first year of living in North Carolina was a very dark, dark, dark year for me, one of my darkest so far, and then blossomed into a lifestyle that I feel that brings me to tears and, gra and gratitude and hope to teach other people how to cultivate and create this type of life, which is, you know, a self-sustaining, um, more self-authentic life for sure. And 100% a very, very much so a, a hippie mama, definitely waving the hippie tie-dye flag loud and proud. So, um, and I do think it's cool, I mean, in some weird way, like scientists are always saying, you know, especially now that research is being done, back then it was probably more taboo and, you know, basically just like, you know, shake down the street at a lot of a concert or whatever is like what you're going to find these things. Um, but yeah, this, you know, psychedelics generally, but specifically magic mushrooms, um, helps with depression, right? Resets the brain 
in terms of serotonin uh, inhibition and uptake. So it's, uh, yeah, I think for people who are kind of, I'm not saying it's a cure-all, but it seems like tortured souls um, can improve from that uh, experience. So I'm glad. And it also, like you're saying, it wasn't just pharmacological, though that had an impact. It seemed like also kind of um, the, the city mouse going to the country <laughs> or whatever had a big impact on your kind of overall worldview and maybe even trajectory as well. So let's play a quick song. I mean, by quick, I mean it's like six or seven minutes. Um, it's a song, um, the DJ, um, I'm forgetting his name now, Simon Posford of Spangle. Uh, he had a side project at one point called Younger Brother. And this is a track off that album, um, Last Days of Gravity, which is maybe about a decade now old, but this is beautiful stuff. I think very psychedelic, but also very cool, you know, painting music or meditation, whatever. Um, so if you want to get tea or kind of stretch your legs or whatever, uh, feel free. But hopefully you enjoy the track. And when we get back, we'll talk about all, you know, pharmacology, uh, not pharmacology necessarily anymore, but um, what you're doing in terms of sustainability and uh, all, the, all the little projects you've got going because you've got a thumb and a lot of pies so hopefully you enjoy the track and we'll be right back i'm back so Anne marie um a couple things that i want to talk about and then i do want to get into sustainability what you're growing what you're cooking up all that jazz um your handle on this uh, server is tantric mandala and you had said that you had been doing a lot of mandala art um i'm kind of curious about what that means to you uh maybe what your worldview is in terms of tantra and stuff like that Yes, thank you for noticing. So Tantric Mandala is uh, the name of my art business uh, that I primarily sell my herbalism products and my uh, mandala pottery through and my tinctures through and some of my plant-based um, aromatherapy such as smudge sticks. So I Oh, it's excited with mandala work from studying art as a student because of the colors and the repetitive patterns and the detail. I have definitely been advised my entire life that modesty is what I should lean towards and to be less embellished and uh, less loud um, and, you know, less, less, um, I don't know, detailed in a lot of ways. And I have been attracted towards mandalas because of how soothing and beautiful and um, just elegant that they are. And when I was starting to make pottery as a solo artist here in my home that I've been in now for five years, I challenged myself to to embark on a process that I had not before with clay, which was carving and two-dimensional work on the surface of my mugs. Instead of having a sculptural approach where I can just build from the ground up, something that was challenging for me as a student was to draw or to use a pen or a pencil or to paint and to to create depth on the surface as opposed to building that depth physically. So um, mandalas pull me in and they bring me to this place of serenity and surrender and at the same time it all makes me feel really good and i always lean towards things that make me feel really good and those that are voluptuous or colorful or floral or repetitive soothe me so i chose to embark on that uh style of art making and um for me that generates a comforting energy then comes the idea of tantra and unifying the world through emotion and mentality and physical health and design and food and for me that's how it all harmonizes to me through my artwork 
is um, I want my work to feel good and to look good and to induce that health onto its consumers or its users. That's what's up. Um, my awareness of mandalas comes more from a Carl Jung kind of level. Um, I have seen uh, and, and kind of like archetypal symbolism and how it's kind of this, you know, the, the monad, the circle coming out further and further um, into detail. And then I've seen some beautiful Tibetan kind of mandalas uh, in a movie that's really cool, sober or fucked up um, or tripping or whatever, on, uh, called Baraka. Um, I think it's in there. Um, maybe it was kind of Scotty. I'm forgetting now. But anyway, it's one of these movies that's art kind of house film, weird cinematography, but cool and engrossing stuff. Uh, you see, you know, these, I think it's Baraka. Uh, you see these mandalas um, being made very painstakingly with grains of sand that are colored. Uh, and then ultimately they blow it away in the wind, kind of this like, you know, symbol of, you know, this too shall pass kind of stuff. Raphael, do you have any kind of uh, resonances with mandalas yourself? Well, they're obviously one of the most interesting patterns, and I can only assume that they are somewhat resembling however certain higher density frequencies would look like visually, and that's why everyone's so attracted to them. It's pretty blatantly obvious to me, actually. Or, I mean, that's my very strong assumption, let's just say. So it's just, again, making higher frequencies visible, therefore it's soothing you know, it's symmetrical and so on. Many other reasons, technical, I don't even know about. That's my general feeling. And when you say like, are you talking about like template realities or whatever, the higher dimensional kind of things you think kind of fall in through that schematic? Potentially, you know, it would be difficult now to put any one particular name on it, but simply put that this again is just actually like an aspect of visionary art that they make certain layers of reality visible. And I mean, at least in certain altered states, I'm sure y'all would agree, you know, these kinds of patterns, you know, come through pretty strong. So yeah, at least to me, there's no surprises here. Yeah, they're pretty archetypal, pretty, I mean, primitive is a weird word, because I don't know if that does justice to it, but it seems like these are deeply rooted kind of things. And even, and this is kind of an arbitrary point, but one that came to mind, um nipples when we're breastfeeding as kids theoretically through the you know evolution of humans um not so much these days with you know whatever kind of contraptions we're doing but uh, or synthetic milk or whatever but um that's kind of mandala-esque i mean i don't think there's much of a correlation necessarily but it seems that round things make us happy and even at a just archetypal symbolical level like you were saying when one does psychedelics um these kind of kaleidoscopic mandalas seem to be kind of a a trope uh, or a recurring kind of theme and variation of these journeys. Um, have you done much research uh, into mandalas, Anne-Marie? Or uh, it's not—it's fine if you're not like an expert. I'm not sure as fuck. I'm not, but I'm kind of curious if there's anything uh, more that we're not touching upon mandalas and their kind of profundity. Um, uh, be conscious, yours. Yes, I learned about some of the origins and the function of them within spirituality, uh, mostly through the Buddhist religion and Tibetan um, history, and that it's that they they aid in meditation uh, and transinduction. They're representative of life. They are a symbol of life. Um, but that's so far as I learn about more religions, that is a universal uh, a universal design for life is is a mandala 
Um, so for me, that's a great way to unify my people. And I think that's what our world needs more, is more love, more support, uh, more harmony, um, more connection, and more comfort, more nurturing all around, even from business sense. Um, so that's as as far as as far as it would go for me for how why I find it important for me. And aside from the aesthetic appeal to them, um, they definitely are grounding visually. And I've realized that in a, a lot of um, Hindu is a Hindu religion also depends on it too. There's just it's a, a multicultural diagram of life. I'm not like a socio, you know, anthropological sociological expert, but I'm pretty sure that Mayans um, have kind of this weird, not weird in a bad way, but like a, almost a yin yang mandala type looking image that I've seen a bunch before. So yeah, it seems kind of like uh, transcendent to culture. It seems kind of primitive to the design of what the human experience at a subconscious kind of uh, symbolic level is manifesting as. Um, and even, you know, spiral galaxies, all that, it seems like circles tie-dyes on a you know, tie-dye shirt it seems this is something we're attracted to um, another idea oh god that somehow comes up maybe Anne marie maybe you know i'm completely off you know the proper track here but what somehow comes to mind looking at your logo also is this idea that you know just like they say life or whatever is a perfect puzzle everyone has a unique shape and it's not first of all it's very relative as to where the center point is that's, of course, also a metaphysical argument, let's say. But here in particular, there's, you know, all kinds of different shapes. And it is actually or would not be superior for a different shape to be in the center. So in a sense, also the the unique position that may seem off-center actually being the perfect position depending on shape, right? Absolutely. For me, that translates into what I call radial balance. So using uh, various shapes to create visual radial balance, but at the same time, by experiencing and viewing that aesthetic balance, that it brings balance to you internally. And that internal balance is kind of what Tantra is all about, Shiva Shakti, kind of polarity, integration. Um, you know, the Tao of the yin-yang, whatever, however one wants to coin it. Um, so, uh, is there, uh, before we kind of get into the craftiness of your reality, I'm kind of curious if there's any levels of, um, you know, ontological uh, frameworks or whatever that are interesting to you. Like, uh, what? Are, I mean, we don't have to go down too many rabbit holes. Like, do you think, you know, aliens are a thing? <laughs> I mean, if you talk to DMT beings... Do you think that this is a hologram dream we're in? How how materially reductionistic are you, given that you're a material kind of artist who seems to be kind of grounded practically? Do you, do you think this is a wild, weird trip and, and it's hard to make sense of it? Any any kind of level of that stuff? Oh, I certainly believe in um, other life forms outside of what we have been uh, brainwashed to think exist. I definitely have seen and feel and have experienced energies in my own home and through my throughout my life that are that have sh shifted me enough energetically for me to believe in them and to to just realize that I, we are such a small a small portion of the entire universe i certainly think there's other beings out there 100 percent. so you're talking about like meeting fairies or seeing you know angels or what do you, what kind of experiences have you had 
uh, more of spiritual, like spirits being present. So things shifting or me seeing um, something move on its own without any sort of physical interaction shapes. Uh, I have had conversations with what I, I think are my my grandparents under DMT and LSD and psilocybin and sharing that conversation with them until into my into my present moment into my physical reality into a physical space um, i definitely think that we communicate to people that have transitioned during our sleep and there's the whole world of the dream the dream world i have communicated to friends that have passed away very young mostly through dream state and i'm just starting to really harness communication to other sources and when I'm thinking are now ancestral sources through psychedelics. And it's it's a it's a pathway that I will continue to focus on for the rest of my life. I would even suggest it given your North Node and Moon conjunct in seventh house Aquarius. Uh or not yeah, yeah, in Aquarius. Um so it seems like, you know, you can actually in a weird way kind of level up through communication. Uh in a word you can be a conduit for maybe what like you're saying, whether it's ancestral or transdimensional kind of energies so it's cool that you're not freaked out by that i guess you do have jupiter and gemini so you're like all about having fun <laughs> so you're like this is interesting i guess as long as it doesn't freak you out you're having fun yeah you know a lot of um this exposure and this new portal that opened for me in life and my approach to life came with wanting to improve my health so there was a point in my adulthood after graduating from college that i I uh, was very sad, depressed, and unhealthy, and overweight, and life was just physically difficult and mentally difficult and not fluid and open and airy and excitable uh, as it once was. And I remember wanting to feel the way that I felt uh, at certain moments in my life after a soccer game, um, at an at a concert or at a festival at the peak of a moment of a festival where you're surrounded by loving people or how I felt after being awarded the top in my class as an art student and remembering how proud I felt of myself. And there was a certain point in my adulthood where I was very far from that position. So integrating health and nutrition and unlearning an entire lifetime of food and what I thought was nutrition is was a huge pivotal moment in my for the rest of my life is to start taking my health seriously which translates into taking the health of the planet seriously not just physically with plants but the mental health of all of human beings and sharing that conversation and bringing it up and integrating everything that i've learned about art academics um psychedelic therapy and self-sustainability into the power of nutrition and my definition of nutrition comes at a high standard you know like i you everyone needs nutrition you need you need nu nutrients and water to live and what is life without health so it wasn't until i started to take my health seriously that i was able to tap into all of these psychological portals and physical portals and artistical channels for me i uh i definitely i hold a high respect for the power of plants and plant nutrition that's what's up yeah I'm, i've been vegan for a little over three years probably vegetarian 10 before that um, yes yeah but i'm not like don't don't clap your hands too hard i'm not like eating you know only broccoli and stuff like i've been doing more processed stuff and you know soy 
sausages and all that kind of stuff. Um, more protein powders now, so I'm not I'm not a poster boy for veganism. But I, for me, ultimately, it's sort of shifted from. Uh, it's funny for a long time. I you know I've never been a big meat eater. Um, not like I need a steak a day or anything. Chicken and you know smoked salmon was all right, but like I didn't really care. But you know, just like American diet, like oh yeah, JBC from fucking Wendy's, I'll eat it, whatever. Um, and then at some point in 2007 or eight, um, there I was basically at a uh, Christian. I was at part with this church youth group on a retreat, and this cute girl was a vegetarian, and I was like, oh, this is my end. Like I'll, I'll do this. I don't need meat. Like I'll I'll try this out until I'm trying it. And it that's a dumb reason to start anything in a way, but uh, I kind of stuck with it and. Um, over about a decade, the only time I hiccuped, uh, it was in Hawaii, ironic, because there's just so much fish and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, I, I'll, I'll try that. Um, but came back, then eventually I was doing a lot of LSD and I saw like the, either a PETA video or something like that while tripping or after, right after tripping. And I was kind of just like, oh my God, I could never, like, it just shifted everything. Like even like cheese and stuff like vegetarians could have cheese and all that jazz. And I was like, I don't know, this is a lot of suffering just for like, you know, my stomach. Um, it's one thing if you're like raising Bessie on the farm, maybe, and being conscious about it. But generally speaking, we're so mechanized and part of industrial kind of, you know, food <laughs> um, at so many levels that it was obvious that like, you know, sentient beings were like basically in a kind of um, H.R. Geiger looking kind of hell <laughs> uh, just to be, you know, living in their own shit and then slaughtered just to be. You got what I'm saying. So I'm not like a poster boy for veganism or, you know, health in that sense. Raphael's much more, I, I don't know what his diet is. But he's been turning me on to like um, Shilajit and trying to always kind of um, get me more woke to like, you know, it's one thing to be a vegan and living on like tofurkey. And it's another thing to be a vegan and like living on like, you know, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, things that have not been uh, altered necessarily. And it's not like, Jim, you hadn't experienced the different diets in your life, no? Well, I've tried random bullshit, like right when I'm, um, I mean, that sounds so crass. Uh, when I came to, it, sometimes it has to do with availability and just like prices and stuff. So, I mean, for better or worse, I mean, not to go long on about myself. I just didn't care. I was more or less ignorant just by, you know, it was about pleasure. I was like, oh, well, if it's sweet and salty and whatever, I'll eat it. I didn't care. And I didn't think much about it. I didn't see the correlations necessarily, especially being a stoner for a long time. I was just like, I mean, one of my favorite fucking munchy foods would be like, you know, a box of cereal or a block of cheese or, you know, Danish tray or whatever the fuck. Like, I just didn't care. I was not on a good way. Yeah, that's that another stuff. good trick. Bef before one may get into risk getting the munchies, it's good if you have your diet straight, just a hint. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the worst thing to do is get stoned and then go into like a Walmart or, you know, whatever. And just be like, what do I feel like or whatever? Because you're not going to, you've been programmed by culture and, um, you know, food additives and all sorts of stuff to be not going for the thing that's healthiest. Clearly, um, the pineapples are amazing. It's not the, I mean, I'm going for cookies more than pineapples generally, naturally. So, or at least in my fucked up nature. Um, I'm totally spacing what I was saying, but, uh, yeah, it started shifting for me and I'm not like there yet. I'm not like raw, organic, whatever. Um, but it's definitely, I, oh yeah, I was kind of talking about random bullshit. Like when I moved to Colorado, I, uh, worked at a YMCA up in the Rockies, um, where I still live up, up in the high country, but, um, I was at this YMCA retreat center or whatever, and they had all you can eat buffet. And I was like, oh, I've heard of, I mean, I was vegetarian at that point. I had just come back from Hawaii, really, basically. And I was kind of, actually, I had just had a breakthrough experience on DMT like a few months before and 
had a Kundalini activation and met Egyptian deities and all sorts of weird shit. So I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to quit smoking and drinking. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to, you know, do all this kind of life reset. So when I moved out here a few months later, I was like, oh shit, there's a all you can eat buffet. I can actually just live on kiwis or, or, you know, bananas or whatever. So I was trying fruitarianism. And I'll be honest, like living on just bananas for a week, I did it once. And I thought I would be like, you know, all stopped up or messed up and just like shitting my pants or whatever. I had more energy than ever before. I felt clear. Um, it was only possible because there was just like, you know, a plethora of bananas that I wasn't paying for. I was just like, sure, I'll try it. So, you know, experimenting with food, diets helps. Everyone's kind of blood types and body types and stuff might dictate maybe where they go. But this stuff uh, is definitely worth checking out instead of just, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, but, you know, don't just think pizzas and milkshakes and Mr. Pib or whatever are like normal. Like we've been, you know, we've been programmed to think, you know, refined sugars and fats and salts, like in French fries and all that kind of stuff is like normal. And that's why there's an obesity issue. That's why a lot of people have depression. Um, yeah. You know, food sovereignty is an issue. So kind of Amory, uh, Amory, I keep saying Amory because I work with a girl named Amory in Switzerland at one point. So my bad. Um, uh, but Amory, um, kind of walk us through maybe your food journey and what that kind of looks like because it seems you take it pretty fucking seriously i was so waiting for you to ask me that question i've been dying to answer this for sure i've been really excited to do so um thank you for asking that it's been a long beautiful journey for sure so food food is the spine to where i'm at now um i should it's easier for me to start from where I am standing right now in my pottery studio talking about it. So where am I with food right now? I have decided that a whole food plant-based vegan diet is what makes me um, the most happy. It makes me the most productive. It provides the most sleep and um, makes me feel the most confident. And therefore I am the most successful and generate and complete my manifestations the most and i on a specifically a whole food plant-based vegan diet i have been i was a carnivore i was a meat eater i was raised on a standard american diet on fast food and everything uh, processed with the most sugar the most fat and the most um, amount of animal suffering until i was in college and then while i was in an english class this bitch of an English professor. She was terribly mean. I mean, terribly mean and extremely bitter. She uh, assigned a reading in an anthology that discussed the intricacies of um, pig cruelty on the animal farms here in Smithfield, North Carolina for, to generate bacon. And I thought it was the most profound lesson that this very dark woman specifically chose this detailed, torturous reading for us to learn about animal cruelty um, for, and for us to study and to discuss and present about it. And it was from that article and the, the wildness of her uh, assigning that reading to us that triggered me to start to become a vegetarian and understanding animal suffering because I had never been discussed growing up about animal suffering. You just, I just ate with my parents provided to be easy and to be, to just live and not, not pay attention and keep going on with life. And then in college I was exposed to animal cruelty and what that meant in full detail. And it brought me to tears. So I started 
as a vegetarian, I think when I was 17 or 18. And I was a vegetarian for about a decade. And at some point in my vegetarianism, I think it was in the early stages, I had mentioned to a chef that I was eating fish. And they were like, well, fish is an animal too. You're 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 eating, you're still a carnivore, you're eating fish. And then I was like, well, that's a pescatarian. And then they were like, but it's still an animal. It's part of the animal kingdom. And it then refined my understanding of what was considered um, an animal and what wasn't. And I played with and experimented with veganism for one year when I was in college. And it was really hard. It was really difficult. But I went into it with full intent and clarity and then came out of it after a year. And um, gosh, this is such an important topic for me. So where it has condensed later in my life is that it was involved with my weight loss journey. I've lost probably 45 pounds now. I fluctuate up and down with how much by changing my diet, but by wanting to do two things. I wanted to be, I decided I wanted to be an animal activist for the rest of my physical life. And I also want to be as physically confident and feel as physically healthy as I could. So that eventually evolved into veganism. And when I first entered veganism, I was a very unhealthy junk food, tofurkey eating vegan. And I was still very low vibe and functioning at a very low frequency and was still agitated a lot and restless sleep, overweight, not happy. Um, just being aware that just because it was vegan, wasn't it wasn't making me feel any better. And then um, my uh, surrounding community here in North Carolina and I started to focus more on nutritional veganism and that converted to whole food plant-based veganism to help generate us on our collective weight loss journey to do it as a tribe and I have I have moments where I treat myself and I go in cycles of being like top notch super crazy healthy and physically active and then I fall into these comfort levels of just satisfying my taste buds and my psychological self with comfort foods. 99% of them are vegan. Every now and again, I will accidentally eat something that's not vegan or intentionally have a bite of something that was handmade by somebody else or by another artist or pastry chef or executive professional chef or friend. Very minimally that isn't vegan, but that's a, a very once in a blue moon thing. I just, nothing in my life is quite absolute and that's part of it. Um, and then from going through my weight loss journey based off of whole food plant-based veganism, I learned, well, all of these things, which are just vegetables, fruit, and lettuces in their whole plant form, I'm buying from another farmer here in North Carolina. We live in agricultural land, or I'm buying it at the grocery store. And one of my biggest favorite activities in life is to figure out how to do it myself, is to be self-reliable. So it turned into, well, if I'm buying these, pr this produce at the store, I can save myself so much money and time and effort and at the same time acquire a new whole life propelling set of skills by learning how to grow food my, on my own. It sounds like so, the clay kind of approach <laughs> too with pottery where you're like, I don't need y'all. Like I can do, I mean, you, it seems to, you have a very DIY aesthetic. Yes, practical. I definitely am more of a practical, I consider myself a practical woman. I'm definitely a practical artist and practical daughter and learner and student and animal advocate, for sure. 
So doing on my own is what I prefer to do if I can learn how to do it and create it on my own. With some help from friends and resources and access to goods and materials, I, I would much prefer to do it myself than to have to lean on somebody else for sure. And that comes down to growing food and now it's turned into a, an intentional small urban homesteading lifestyle. It's amazing where uh, our choices can lead us. Just simple things like some, you know, crabby teacher <laughs> being like, read this. It can lead to, you know, an entire kind of skill set and uh, reality tunnel shifting uh, for the down the line. I myself am pretty fascist with my veganism, I'll be honest. Like, so, um, when, you know, people like, oh, this, you know, my mom's always like, here, just try this chocolate or whatever. I'm like, does it have milk in it? And I'm like, no. So I, I can be pretty all or nothing once I'm committed, you know, it's like that. Um, and I'm not definitely not a fascist in the sense of a projector in the sense of some people are like I'm a vegan and if you're not you're going to hell you're the worst person ever um how uh so the fact that you kind of you know fuck around with men and, you know 99 percent of the time you're straight on it and then whenever you deviate I'm not gonna judge you on that I don't care in some ways your life your trip but how do you um personally kind of deal with the moralism and maybe the kind of uh zeal that can come with these um food choice you know animal rights as well as veganism itself um if you catch my drift that is such an important question i'm so glad this came up yes so in the beginning i have lived most of my life um as a as a, an absolutism type person it's 100 percent all of my effort all of my attention and it has to be perfect the entire way through or not and i uh entered veganism with that very um a very rigid approach and i did it i approached it that way for many years and realized that i would feel guilty during two moments one if somebody accidentally fed me something that they thought was vegan and it wasn't uh, i would fall into a ball of upset sad regretful uh, guilty emotions what have i or, done yeah exactly like i should didn't mean to what was what did i do you know it was upsetting. It was hurtful. And then as I continued to go deeper into the years of my veganism, um, I realized that I would punish myself if I chose to take a bite of something that wasn't vegan. And then I realized that I was punishing myself in two ways by eating the food because I didn't feel good afterwards. If I eat a, a cookie or two or I never, I would never eat like a piece of meat. It would really translate into something sweet, like a cookie or a, a baked good, um, not like a piece of cheese. I usually lean towards something sweet. And then I would, I would psychologically self-harm myself about it. And then as I entered my adulthood, I realized that that's not, that's not positive either. Uh, that what you do 95% of the time matters. And in my vegan and vegan lifestyle, I do it 99% of the time. Um, and I have for a very long time. So I've shifted my gears to forgive myself more. And the layer of forgiveness is another layer, deep layer to the, my onion of life of what generates more happiness for me and that I hope to teach other people. And it stemmed, also stems from my, you know, my approach to veganism and giving myself a little bit, a very, 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 very small window of leniency and forgiveness um and i think that it's unhealthy or not propelling for the vegan community to be absolute with it i lived the absolute side for many years and i'm still very close to absolute but you have to be 
understanding and loving and supportive and welcoming and accepting. And that I allow in that 1% of the time that I'm not doing it, you know, to show self-love and respect. It's not a lack of respect. It's a full of respect. That makes total sense. It seems that, um, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't want to be cliche, but you know, some animal activists get so extreme. Uh, it's almost like when people wake up and they're like, you know, the government's putting fluoride in the water. And it's like, it, it's tricky because on the one hand, truth movements, if you want to put it that way, can be very shocking. And the zeal with which these people are trying to convert, I guess, if you want to put it that way, people's minds from program to maybe deprogramming can be almost like meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of vibes where it's like, you know, uh, just extreme. Uh, I mean, it's tricky because, um, like, I choose not to participate with, you know, let's put it this way. I'll buy shoes, and if they have leather involved, it's like I'm not going to, like, burn down my build, the building or whatever, right? It's like, right, right. Um, so well, some people are just like, oh, my God, you're the devil and stuff. It seems that the zeal can become very self-righteous, um, and that's usually when the compassion is lacking, and it turns into, like, I found a truth. And it's one thing to know your own truth, but it's another thing to try to, like, proselytize it and convert others so um what's your opinion on that kind of front i mean it seems like it's well-intentioned but it usually ends up coming from a place of like more judgment than you know like what you're saying acceptance and kind of integration um i'm kind of curious we've had a, a david santucci who's a pretty hardcore vegan um and vegetarian kind of activist type he's a cool guy um and I was kind of wondering what he thought in terms of the grand picture and the mandala of life. Are there going to be colors and patterns where people are doing this stuff and we have to accept it? Like, how do you look at activism in the face of like acceptance? Does that make sense? Yeah. So in the beginning of my veganism, I was very closed off to the, uh, to the entire kingdom of veganism so that meant that translated into understanding the material goods around me and the equipment that I use and my form of transportation so it wasn't I learned over time that it isn't just what you consume as food but it's what you consume as purchases and how you vote your dollars towards certain items and what you're buying and what that's physically made of or who physically owns that company and what that company is doing uh, whether it's a vegan owned company, whether it's a vegan product, meaning that there's zero animal, uh, zero animal interaction in any sort of way in the end product. Um, and then I realized a light bulb went off for me that I am a hiker, I'm a backpacker. So I depend on my boots for, for getting me through dozens of miles deep into woods and my boots are made of leather. And I'm the type of person that if it's, if it functions for me, if I buy a product, whatever it may be, if it functions and it's reliable and it's high quality, I will buy that same thing for as long as it's created. So that immediately translates into my hiking boots. I have been wearing the same hiking boots for the last eight years and they're made with leather. I drive a truck and that's there's leather within the interior of that truck and it's run off. It runs off of <clears throat> fossil fuels and rubber. Um, rubber tires, which definitely has depleted landscapes of animals and has killed how many millions of animals for that to exist in my life. Uh, the idea of mass produced organic vegetables with zero, with it being vegan, meaning zero uh, animal uh, participation. <laughs> yeah, animal harm is not realistic. So in on a, let's say a lettuce farm, that they're growing 
10 acres of lettuce. What is cultivating that lettuce is a, is a $100,000 piece of machinery that's tilling the land, that's cultivating and harvesting that plant good, that's churning earthworms or killing or running over a rabbit or running over a ma another larger mammal or some sort of amphibian, you know? So I think I have very much so opened my blinders towards the vegan world that um, there's to not lean on the judgmental side ever. I try to be as non-judgmental as a person as I physically and psychologically and spiritually can be. And that's translated into the way that I eat. Um, I am way more open and accepting than I think the majority of the vegan community is. And I, and I hope that it continues to, to go in the path that it is, which is just more awareness to accepting other people's approaches and not to scrutinize or to judge when a vegan chooses to eat or consume or buy something that's not vegan because at the end of the day we still have to survive and for example for me um my boots allow my survival in the woods and they're made of leather so it is uh, a leniency that i uh, apply to myself it's a, a form of care of self-care as instead of you know self-hatred or harming myself mentally over it word Raphael. i'm kind of curious about your food choices and philosophy uh given that we're all kind of spilling our guts and, and i do appreciate um and marie what you're kind of saying because it seems like uh the awareness seems to be the more the issue um than um uh how would i even put it I mean, if people, if you come to it through love, that's very different than coming to it through, than through severity, though sometimes that's necessary, clearly grace, severity, kind of the polarity, but um, usually people, in a weird way, this happens in all sorts of things, whether it's psychedelics, I mean, I know I've been like a psychonaut and been very proud of it. Pride is a funny thing, where it's like it kicks in, it's like, um, you know, oh my gosh, these plebes, they don't eat acid, they don't know, or whatever, it's like, maybe that's not that karma or dharma, it's, it's okay. Um, so it's kind of this weird balance between like trying to be excited and showing people where you're at without maybe overly identifying with it. Cause I think sometimes people, uh, that's what my fiance, she's not vegan necessarily, but she's like, if she was to go that way or whatever, she'd say, probably say plant-based, right? Like we were saying. Um, cause I think even the vegan thing could kind of be a badge of honor and a very weird kind of egoic spiritual superiorism or whatever superiority kind of complex. Uh, but anyway, Raphael, I'm kind of curious, um, cause you've never been hyper strict, Raphael. Like, you've always been like, I mean, I think you've done all the types of, you know, eating that you, one can, like raw vegan and stuff. Um, it seems like you're kind of up the same creek where you're just kind of honoring yourself in your own practice without giving a fuck about maybe how, what the peanut gallery thinks. Depends, of course, I don't. And the logic is very simple. It's just, uh, what you had mentioned now in terms of one's own health. Because if one experiments with different diets, and if you really do it at least, you know, for a few weeks per diet, let's say, or just really observing your body, your, you know, digestion cycle, how you feel emotionally, all of those things, then I, let's say, have the impression everyone really can determine the optimal diet for themselves, maybe different for everyone. Although I wholeheartedly agree with what you said that at least everyone should try out uh how did you put it um whole plant-based diet whole foods plant-based diet there's other ways one may put it in terms of you know making sure the energetics are right this would then translate potentially even into raw vegan and fermented foods and so on and 
I mean, there's too many, let's say, insights or recommendations to put it all into just one statement. But simply put, everyone is able to determine their own diet. And the idea is same as always, decondition from whatever you've been taught, experiment yourself. And if you really notice how different you feel, if you find a diet that fits, number one, you'll be quite unlikely to really deviate if you love yourself. And that's the other thing I'd say in regards to veganism, you know, love other humans and yourself as much as you let's say, pretend uh, to love animals, right? Then everything will be all right. <clears throat> Not chastising oneself, I think is super important. That's also, of course, a process everyone has to go through by themselves. So for me, I would say, I guess technically I'm eating 95% vegan or something like that. And, you know, it's always a matter of degree, but ultimately it's just about sticking to what makes you feel best. That's what I think is the easiest. And I just have the strong impression that for a large majority of individuals, if they're really honest with themselves, this would actually most likely translate into a, let's say, mostly whole foods, plant-based diet. That's just my impression. The momentum of the addiction of certain food types, though, I mean, I think I read an article once saying, Jesus, you know, dairy products, cheese, whatever, is as addictive as cocaine. Um, obviously, sugar is like crack. <laughs> Um, and then even the, the way industries have pivoted in such a way to be like, we're going to add salts and fats to make the primitive kind of instincts that you have. I mean, we're looking for these things in nature as hunter gatherers, whatever, um, all of a sudden, okay, you know, oh, go ahead. I'll just say it again, because it's always the argument with, oh, you know, they make the perfect mix of fat and sugar to keep you addicted. Of course. But the thing is, and I'm sure you know about this, uh, you can do the very same with, uh, Sup vegan superfood stuff and do something that tastes much superior gives you actual satisfaction because that's the other issue if you eat let's say the sad diet standard american diet or we could also say standard european diet to a lesser ex a bit lesser extent maybe but still you know if you just go to supermarket you still have there's 95 percent of things you literally cannot buy if you want to be healthy right um so no, I completely love right now here. Here I am. So basically, you can recreate superior foods, not necessarily spending a whole lot of money, and actually then recognizing you also need to consume less because you actually satisfy your bodily need because the issue is, you're addicted to it, but not really because of the fat sugar composition, but because your body associates and thinks there's some, let's say, germanium or copper or whatever inside, depending on taste. Um, but that's just not inside if it's processed food and denaturated and, you know, low quality. So you will never be able to satisfy your craving even with that. And if one understands that logically, and then you feel it by having experimented with different foods, at least to me, there's, there's simply no argument. Uh, yeah, there's no argument. Again, the specifics are unique to everyone. But in terms of general differentiation between the supposed standard diet, you know, ideally eat five times a day and in the morning start with some ham and eggs or something. Um, if you're building a yeah. railroad, that might be a good prescription. I've always kind of thought it's like funny because uh, even, even then, right. It's, I mean, my fiance is always intermittent fasting. I don't do that so much, but I don't really eat that much now. I guess what I was kind of saying is it's it, for warning for people if they haven't gone these kind of more conscious dietary routes your body's going to fight it. Your mind is going to fight it. Like I remember there being a time 
I mean, it's a, it's a transitional process. Just going from like you know Burger King and stuff to like lettuce or something. That's you're gonna hate yourself. I mean, it's the right thing to do in a way at a level, but at the same time, it's like you're gonna feel so with the withdrawal of all these chemicals and stuff that you're so used to. There has to be kind of a detoxing process. I think actually in a weird way, I might have um, gotten like I used to smoke a lot of weed. I think at one point when I quit smoking weed, I was kind of going to withdraw, and that's maybe when I shifted from vegetarian to vegan, when I was just like, well, I'm already not eating a whole lot, so basically I'll just kind of start being more mindful of it. Um, not that it has to be that suffering or anything, but I guess it's kind of a real thing. And supplements was what you also mentioned. I found that, you know, it's not, I mean, maybe you guys, I don't know if you take a lot of supplements, but whether it's, um, you know, uh, CBD I take or, you know, spirulina and chlorella and all you know i take a bunch of stuff you know, turmeric a bunch of random shit i'm not sure if i could be getting that like one you know pomegranate that does it all i'm not that like up to snuff on nutrition like that i'm just dumb and distractible like that but it seems that um something that you know might help assuage some of these kind of uh withdrawals and confusions of the body and stuff is like also like you know doing the supplements in terms of protein powders and other things but like i said maybe i'm just doing it a little different than y'all so uh Anne marie um any other thoughts on food before i kind of shift gears to maybe some of your craftiness yes and i think it's going to parallel into it i do have a couple of more things to say about the food a topic that leads leads into my uh, craftiness of life is that when we talk about detoxing, like we turn to plants plants to detox or fasting to detox. As an American, I was I've been born and raised in the United States. It's a detox. It's a cultural detox because our agricultural system, our medical system, and our pharma, pharma pharmaceutical industries are all connected to each other. They're businesses. So our health insurance is a business. Our food is a business. And the, pharma the pharmaceutical industry is a business and the food is intended the way that we, our standard American diet is to maintain our addictions so that it continues for to put money in the pocket of pharmacies and it continues to put money in the pocket of farmers and, uh, and in the, the medical system by keeping people sick. And it's a process of unlearning and uh, literally detoxing off of the addiction of sugar, salt and fats certain fats, not all fats, and, um, in order to return to plant medicines. And that's not generally, that's not the, the standard way. And it is turned into the standard of my personal life. And I've had to unlearn so many habits, ways of thinking, ways of cooking, uh, ways of shopping for food to, uh, to take this authentic approach towards life an individual approach towards life which has led to all of my my crafting um and how the how i choose just now and how i choose to vote my dollars as best as i can uh how to reduce my carbon footprint or to be as close to zero waste as a human being as i can i'm not zero waste i think zero waste is a is an is a fancy fancy title uh that's unrealistic i don't live off the grid i live on the grid um, but it definitely is the spine to what propels my creation as an herbalist and as a homesteader and how I really live as a person. So some things I recall seeing on Facebook, you posting about like growing your mushrooms, maybe lion's mane or something like that. Am I tripping on that? 
No, you're right. I uh, I started learning about the healing properties of mushrooms, not just psilocybin, but all types of domestic and various world mushrooms. And at the end of the day, uh, we talked about supplements. So I do take some supplements, about a quarter of them are handmade by me and, and other friends of mine. And I would say 75% of them uh, are purchased what purchased just for just for the idea of fun of taking the supplement because I think they provide wellness and I've noticed a shift in my energy. Um, but leaning away from purchasing purchasing uh, goods and products from a company and leaning more towards learning how to do it myself to create the product myself, which turns into mushroom powders and mushroom tinctures. And I was like, well, I've never grown mushrooms. And there's that whole world, the mycelium network of how, how the, pro the difficult and intricate process of growing mushrooms. So yes, I embarked on attempting that to learn how my house environment interacts with the mycelium network in this house. And it's, it's out of all of the things and skill sets that I have taught and embarked upon growing mushrooms in my house has been difficult for me so far, but something I won't let go of. And I consume mushrooms on a daily basis in the form of tinctures that I have made, double concocted, detocted uh, tinctures and in organic mushroom powders on a daily basis. So I definitely support and advocate for the power of mushrooms for sure, but I'm no longer growing them right now. That's what's up. Uh, when you first said like, you know, not just psychedelic mushrooms, I thought of like Terrence McKenna having, you know, smacking his face and going, oh, shock. George's like, yes, there's mushrooms beyond magic mushrooms that we can't talk about. <laughs> uh, it's like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, like, so is Ivan only, right? And it's like, no, shiitake. I'm not that up on um, mushrooms particularly, like it's a, it, but it's its own world. I think there's people who, I'm not going to say they live only on mushrooms, but I think it could almost, you could make like, you know, jerky type stuff out of it. So you could meet certain needs and i think nutritionally they're pretty dense and stuff you guys can speak on that more than i could um but can mushrooms meet like all your needs in that sense let me just say first of all here you are oh here she's not anymore so <laughs> i'll just fill in in the meantime so and maria back uh jim asks about whether mushrooms can fulfill all dietary requirements I don't know about all of it. All I know is that if you know how to prepare them and collect them, mushrooms just taste awesome. And maybe even more so if one doesn't eat meat. To me, mushrooms almost taste like meat. I mean, by now, I don't know. Maybe that's strange. And the other thing is you have all these medicinal mushrooms. First and foremost, maybe most popular chaga, which is one of the supposedly most antioxidative and therefore, let's say, quote-unquote, life protecting or biophilic substances you could possibly ingest and yeah there's a lot more to say about it but i'll let you speak sure yeah thank you i um so i i'm the type of person that i will believe in a product or the power of a certain plant and its healing properties if it has a positively affected myself or has healed my skin in a certain way so i was doing a lot of research about uh, mushrooms and learning how to grow them and learning about their medicinal properties and which ones have the highest medicinal properties and what they are claimed to do. So I 
I purchased a few blocks to learn uh, how to grow them with the intent to use the mushrooms to heal myself of certain ailments. Uh, one of the ailments that I used with mushrooms specifically was um, I lost, I had, I received nerve damage from backpacking over the summer, a couple of summers ago, and I lost feeling in my shoulder. And I learned that or researched or understood that lion's mane mushroom could help with nerve repair. So I'm the type of person that's feeling and seeing is believing. So I started consuming um, a, a, mushroom, a lion's mane tincture that I made and lion's mane mushroom powder, organic mushroom powder um, on a daily basis for two months. And I went from having this about four inch square of numbness on my shoulder to having complete feeling return. And that for me is enough um, experience for me to pursue and to believe in the power of medicinal of mushrooms for the remainder of my life. And uh, I make a point to consume and to make plant products with mushrooms in them. Like the tinctures that I make all have uh, mushrooms uh, distilled into them. So I choose to focus on reishi, chaga, cordyceps, lion's mane, um, and turkey tail. And then here in Western North, in Western North Carolina, I wildcraft like uh, old man of the woods, chicken of the woods, um, spindle, lactarius indigo, or some other ones, um, oyster mushrooms, any sort of uh, local native mushroom that I can incorporate into my my daily consumption or in my tincture making has been very important to me. And I have felt the highest health I've ever felt in my life. And I continue to say that now. This is my third year saying that. It has all to do with changing my diet, changing my mindset, and consuming more plants and significantly increasing the amount of mushrooms that I consume on a daily basis. So um, besides mushrooms, are there any other kind of, um, you know, practical elements, I guess, that you're like, it sounds like you're making smudge sticks and obviously tinctures, maybe various types. What kind of um, craftiness with the natural world are you doing on a, a just kind of rip through your kind of menu of uh, assorted goods? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you for taking the time to look at it. Yeah, so um, I like to gear my products and the things that I choose to make off of how they make me feel and the type of health that they can provide. So, yes, I make an array of tinctures um, that taste good. They are difficult to consume. That is a an advantage I, I or an edge to tincturing that I, I wish more herbalists took seriously because you're consuming it. So my tinctures tend to taste very good. Um, I grow a lot of herbs and uh, vegetables, so I harvest the seeds and the flowers and petals from them. So I have a handful of grown organic teas that I sell. I have um, Epsom salt spiritual bath soaks so that uh, you can repair your body in a soothing way. I harvest and make smudge sticks or uh, ceremonial purposes and for psychological health. So that's the aromatherapy healing. It smells good. It's grounding and it clears environments of negative energies and certain herbs and certain plants have a different effect on your immediate environment. And um, that's where my mind goes is what, what can I grow myself and how can I make products from it that 
best benefit others. And I am a mad scientist in my, my kitchen frequently. And it's so far has proven to be a very good dedication for myself. I made a, uh, a mosquito repellent here in North Carolina, where I live, is just painfully stricken with blood-sucking mosquitoes, and it's it's inhibit life and definitely negatively affects a lot of citizens uh, because of how attacked you can become or how sick you can become because of mosquitoes. And um, I my my goal was to learn how to make a bug repellent that was made by me with minimal ingredients with maximum health and I'm learning. I'm learning about the process and I'm making effective products that are changing my life and other people's lives based off of the feedback that I gained. So it's where I'm going to continue to go with it is how to best make people happiest and healthiest through things that I can provide myself. Well, you do, like I said, have an 11th house son uh, conjunct Chiron cancer. So it seems like you are your own laboratory. You are a mad scientist for self-care uh, in the best sense possible. Um, I, I knew you'd be cool. Like I talked to you like a year ago and I thought you were pretty cool and a writer chart and stuff, but I am really glad to have uh, touched base. It sounds like you're kicking ass, taking names, having fun, um, and improving your own health and that of the people around you. So that's pretty much being the change. That's what we're kind of called to do. Um, is there any kind of last parting thoughts that you want to leave people with? Yeah, I certainly think that, um, more humans in the world need to be more true to themselves and that it's okay to put your needs first and to pay attention to how you feel and that plants can be an answer. And then um, there's a lot to learn in the still of silence of life for sure. Beautifully put. Um, there's a French Parisian electronic duo called air which is an acronym for a more and rev, which is like love, imagination and dreaming. Um, they have a song called How Does It Make You Feel that made me think of that. I've got a few famous songs. I don't know if you know the band. But anyway, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, yeah, you're definitely Team Rabbit Hole approved. It's cool seeing people kind of doing their thing. And not that you need my approval or Raphael's, but I'm glad you're doing what you're up to. And yeah, keep trucking, girl. Like you're, you're doing it and uh, you, you're showing people that they can do it too. So thank you for sharing your process. Uh, your journey and your delights, uh, Raphael. Thank you so much, Anne Marie. Once again, you know, practical application and especially also what you mentioned in the beginning, I will not recapitulate, but everyone go listen to that. You know, that's what's up. So, you know, acceptance, unconditional love. Here we go. Oh, this is such an honor. Thank you so much. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. Really, I send all of you warm love and juju and blessings from my home and heart to all of yours. Thank you. This has been wonderful. I'm smiling and grinning from ear to ear. I'm glad you had fun. I knew it would be painless. Uh, and I and like you're a great guest. So, uh, I'm glad our paths have officially crossed. And yeah, we'll get you back on here sometime, maybe with some other people and or, or yourself talk about whatever again but yeah thanks for giving us your time and energy and i hope people take a note or two so yeah guys find the fucking others team rabbit hole life Radio Ball